Welcome to the All In Podcast. This is your host, Natalie Allport, and I am so excited to welcome you to today's episode. Today, we have Jay Tuft, a mental performance coach. He's based out of Denver, Colorado, and he's worked with youth athletes all the way up to pro and Olympic athletes. Now, this conversation was really close to my heart because it summarizes a lot of the topics that we've brought on uh, in guest interviews, in my own personal story and journey sharing, in the solo episodes that we've recently had on the podcast. So in this episode, we talk a lot about psychological pressure. Now, this is for whether you're an athlete or not. We all deal with pressure in its own sense. Now, in this interview, Jay talks about what is the actual root cause of this high pressure and the pressure that we put on ourselves. And I have never heard it explained so eloquently um, and so deep as how he explained it. It really summarized a lot of things that I think have been alluded to in past episodes in such an amazing way. So I think you will leave this episode thinking about the whole concept of pressure in your own life, in your own big moments in a totally new way because we talk about pressure, we talk about identity, we talk about how you can perform your best in the face of this pressure. We talk about why mental performance, mental health, um, and the whole sports psychology field is really kind of becoming a forefront topic now. We talk about the importance of mindset and how everything starts in your mind. We talk about thoughts, emotions, amazing, amazing conversation. I know you guys will love it and have so many great takeaways. He also, near the end of the episode, talks about some really practical tools and advice that you can take away immediately. So definitely listen to this full episode. I would love to know your thoughts after it because I am just so hyped on on how amazing this conversation was. So without further ado, let's go all in. Welcome to the All In Podcast. Jay, thank you so much for being here. Natalie, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm going to have to work. I've got a little bit of a cold this morning, so we're going to have to work through that a little bit. But um, excited to be here, excited to have this conversation. Um, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, super appreciate you coming on, working through the cold and talking about um, some really important topics for athletes and, and just anybody who wants to perform at a high level um, in their job, in their life, in their family, in their sports. Um, so could you give me a little bit of a background about what you do, your business and stuff like that before we dive right into it? Yeah, yeah, no, great question. Um, so came out here to Denver um, 2014, um, pursuing a graduate degree in high performance and sports psychology. So finished that up um, from there, spent a couple of years down at the Olympic Training Center um, in Colorado Springs, working with those athletes. Um, and that was actually in preparation for uh, 2016 Rio. So while getting the degree, was able to have that experience down there, which was which was pretty transformative. Um, and then from there, after that contract was fulfilled, um, kind of had this moment um, and there was one specific client that I had worked with who, you know, a young female figure skater. Um, she was at the, at the national team level, not of this country, um, but she was incredibly talented. And because of that talent, you know, her, her sport had thrust her up through the ranks um, in her country quite quickly. And she was incredibly physically gifted, you know, had all the physical tools, technically incredible, um, very tactically sound, but nobody ever taught her what was going to happen when the lights came on and that kind of pressure, which I know is what we're going to get into today, but the amount of pressure that she felt. And it got to a point where 
she would just emotionally break down before she would even take before she would even go on. And it got to a point where she couldn't even take the ice. And so worked with her. Um, and this was at the time she was 13 when we started working together. Um, and it took a lot of work and all the credit goes to her. Um, but we were able to kind of move her through that mental block and get her back to a place where she could continue pursuing her career um, without the burden of that mental challenge anymore. And that really kind of, you know, flipped a switch for me. You know, I was kind of at this crossroads. Do I continue trying to work with these high level athletes, Olympians, Olympians, professionals? Do I go into a college athletic department? Um, and I had this sneaking suspicion that the work that we were doing with these incredibly high level athletes would actually probably be better used or better utilized if we could give these, give it to these younger developing athletes, because for all the athletes that I had worked with to that point that had made it to that level, the thought that I had had was, you know, how many hadn't made it to that level, not for lack of physical or technical gifts, but just truly because they found, they found themselves one day in the face of a, of a mental challenge that they just didn't have the resources to overcome. So that led to, you know, starting the practice um, out here in Denver and I've been doing that for this will be the fifth full year of doing that and just started um, putting some stuff out there online, creating some more content, creating some content, putting, you know, what what's been proven for, to work with the developing athletes that I've been working with for the last five years and and trying to make those resources more readily available to other developing athletes as well as their parents. So that's kind of the, the long of the short of it. I love that. That's super cool. Amazing what you were able to do for that young athlete, but also equally amazing that you have that mission to help those younger generation of, of athletes get to that level. Because um, I, I've seen the same thing, right? What, whether it's a mental game, but also it's, you know, the financial part, the, mm. um, the, the support part, it's in that middle level of you have all the talent and you're trying to make that jump to the highest level. That's where you see the big fall off in athletes. And there's the big wondering of what if, what if they had that support? What if they were taught, you know, the right things, the right way, could they have made it and become some of the best in the world if they were able to get through that? I'm, I'm curious to see, um, like what your process is when you're teaching someone from the basics when it comes to mental performance yeah. versus someone who, you know, they've already had some experience and maybe they have to relearn things or they're going through a hump. Like I'm sure that it's probably easier to go with someone who just hasn't learned about it at all and just build that basics rather than someone who might have, you know, a misunderstanding and having to flip that switch. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, actually. I mean, and, and even for me, you know, while I do have a focus on developing athletes, I've got several professionals, like I've got two or three, for example, um, pro women soccer players that I work with. And so obviously the work with them is fundamentally different than the work that I do with a, with a 10, with my 10 year old baseball player that I have right now, or the couple 14 year old hockey players that I work with. And, and so, yeah, I think, you know, generally there's really, there's really no cookie cutter approach with this. And I'm, I don't, I don't ever take that approach when it comes to the mental side of sport, because across all the sports, the demands can be so different. Um, but then also you have to match those demands to what are the needs of the individual person. And so there's really no cookie cutter approach but from a philosophical standpoint. I, I always start with mindset and I, and I get that at this point, you know, in our world mindset's kind of become like that cliche, you know, buzzword that gets a lot of social media likes and shares, but at, at its core, very simply a mindset is really just nothing more than the pattern way that we think it's our thought habits. And every single athlete that I work with, you know, even you as a, as an athlete, we all have habits 
in given situations. So for example, a young athlete who's facing stress or a pressure filled situation, generally they have a pattern way that they think about or that they handle that situation. Now the question becomes, is that, are those thought patterns, is that productive? Are they productive or are they unproductive? And in that process, you know, obviously is very unique to each individual, but that's where we always start. So with a young athlete, we're always with a young athlete or with a professional athlete, we're always having conversations or we're, we're doing a variety of different exercises or self-awareness raising um, activities or really just conversations, trying to help them understand what their mindset is. Because the the line that I that I use with every single athlete is it, it doesn't really do any good for me to understand what's going on with you, right? It's my job to really help them understand themselves, help them understand what makes them tick. How do they think? What are some of these underlying thought patterns? And then from there, once we identify what, what is going on, that's unproductive from just a pattern pattern thought standpoint, then we start to work to correct those things. And then once from there, then we start getting into more of those mental skills and the pre-performance routines. But for me, everything starts with the mindset. I love that. And I totally, I totally believe that is so true that everything starts with the mindset and regardless of this mental performance training or anything else in, in life, really. And I'm, I'm curious before we dive into talking about, you know, pressure and dealing with pressure. Uh, you mentioned that mindset has become such a buzzword now and mm. uh, it's totally true, but I think, you know, for good reason, because mm-hmm. for so long, we forgot that our men- like mindset, mental health, mental performance, those were things we just didn't talk about or didn't hear about. It was all about the physical. And this is not just in sports, but it's with everything, whether it's someone who wants to become, you know, a better father or someone who wants to be better in their business. Everything was about like the output, the work, the results mm. and not the mindset. So I, I'm so happy to see that that's being, you know, shone a light on and being prioritized. Why do you think that it wasn't as prioritized before or was kind of kind of left behind in priorities before? And why do you think now it's it's starting to come up and obviously become such a big buzzword? Yeah, I mean, I think you and I are very much aligned in that. And and when I say buzzword, I don't you know mean to disregard because mindset is obviously, as you said, incredibly important. I think you just you see a lot of quotes that maybe mislead kind of what a mindset is, or we overuse the word. And I think that's my concern is I don't want that word to become overused or just thrown out into everything to where then now all of a sudden it's diminished in value. Um, but to answer your question, I would say there's always been a stigma with psychology. And, and, and even, you know, I've been doing this for, you know, in private practice now for five years. And I remember when I, you know, started, you know, really got started back in 2016, it, it absolutely, it's been stigmatized. I mean, there, or it's, it was, there was such a stigma or, you know, a great example is, you know, I'd have an athlete come to me and if they were struggling with the mental side of their sport they wouldn't look at it the same way as if they struggled in one of the other three areas of their athletic development, right? So for an athlete to develop, there's really four core areas, physical, technical, tactical, and mental. If they struggled physically, they wouldn't think that there's necessarily something wrong with them at their core. They would just say, I need to go get in the weight room, right? If they had a struggle with a technique, I just need to go get in the gym or go rep, you know, go rep it out a little bit more or just go practice more. If there's a tactical struggle, well, I just need to go watch more film or I need to go, you know, I'll go watch some pros do it. If I struggle, but then, you know, so that would be kind of the, the baseline, but then they would get to, well, I really can't handle stress or I really have, I'm having a hard time managing my emotions or, or pressure is really getting to me 
and there was something there where deep down you could you could sense and even in the work that I did with them, they, you could sense that they felt that there's just something wrong with me at my core. And so I've gotten, you know, for just out of practice and out of sheer necessity, really good at framing it up for these young athletes that listen, you're not here because there's anything wrong with you, right? That would be like literally saying that because you can't squat 400 pounds as a 14 year old, there's something wrong with you. If you want to squat, squat 14 or 400 pounds, fantastic. But there's going to be a process in order for us to be able to get there. Likewise, if you want to be able to handle this kind of pressure that you're, that you're putting yourself in or the, or these pressure situations that you're finding yourself in, well, there's also a process to be able to get better at that. So I think just at a very high level, we don't necessarily look at it as the mental side at times as purely just a deficiency, maybe of a skill set or unproductive thought habits in terms of mindset. We'd love to take it deeper or we've taken it so much deeper for such a long time in terms of judging ourselves at our core is that there's something at times that's just intrinsically wrong with us because we just expect ourselves to be able to handle some of these things when it's hard to expect yourself to be able to handle those things if you haven't put in the work to be able to earn that right. But we don't see it that way. I absolutely love that perspective. I think that's so important for all athletes to hear and anybody to hear, because it's not that you're all of a sudden struggling with something and you have to go seek out coaching. It's like anything else. If you look at mental health, mental performance, um, psychology mindset, if you look at those and you put them at the same level as physical performance, which I think is what everyone is working to destigmatize and to bring awareness mm -hmm. to is that, you know, mental performance, mental health, that is equal to, to physical health and yep. physical performance, then you're, you're going to treat it in the same way. And you're going to be able to build those skills through a coach like yourself or however else over time and not look at it in the way of like, Oh my gosh, now I have the yips. I need to go and, and get a coach or now I'm dealing with, you know, anxiety, depression. Now I need to go seek a therapist. These are things that we can be kind of proactive on and be getting coaching. And, and, and yeah, I think it, it just needs to be destigmatized. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that and spoke about that. Now let's, let's dive into the whole concept of psychological pressure. We obviously <clears throat> saw, um, you know, the Olympics were recently, that's kind of the big shining light for a lot of athletes as an athlete watching it and thinking, wow, four years of work is going into this one very moment and knowing how easy it is to have a bad weekend or just have a bad day. That concept of pressure is always top of mind. So I'd love for you to just kind of give an overview of the concept of psychological pressure, and then we can dive into what causes it, what, what to do about it, um, and how you can perform your best in, in the face of it. No, that's a great place to start. And I think, I think you hit the nail on the head in that you know, a lot of the conversation or a lot of or even really the research um, to this point about pressure has really been on the effects of pressure, right? We're always very acutely aware or much of the conversation is always geared toward what are the effects of pressure? How do they, or how do they negatively impact our performance? And I think why, why, why I was so excited about this conversation is because we could actually get into where does it come from in the first place? Can we get to the root cause of, of that pressure? And, you know, to start off with, Pressure happens. The, this phenomenon known as psychological pressure happens when we feel as people as though our identity is threatened. 
Okay. So we got to unpack that a little bit. So an identity, your identity, Natalie, my identity is really made up of two things. So Natalie Allport's identity is made up of two things. The first thing is how does she perceive the world around her finds value in her? The second thing is how do you value yourself? And that's the same for absolutely any person that's that's listening to this. Every single person, if you're a listener of this of this episode, you your identity is made up of how you think the world around you values you as well as as well as maybe more impactfully how you find value in yourself. Now, obviously, those two things can be very connected, right? Sometimes we sculpt our value, our internal value, or how we find value in ourselves based on how we perceive the world around us finds value in us. So. That's identity. Pressure is going to happen when that identity is threatened, which means so take a young athlete who, you know, let's say a high school athlete who uh, will do a little case study here because I actually just took on, an, on, a, on a new client that would be a great example of this. So 16 year old football player, um, stress fracture. I mean, he's always been incredibly athletic. Okay, 16 year old football player, always been incredibly athletic. He's always been the fast kid. He's always been the one who's just super gifted, you know, certainly works hard, but always also kind of had, you know, just very naturally athletically gifted Um, was always one that everybody said, this guy's going to go, you know, he's going to be a division one football player. He really has a potential future, like in the sport, this, that, and the other thing gets a stress, stress fracture. Okay. Massive threat to his identity, because you think about how for better or for worse. And again, we'll talk about, you know, just that pressure in and of itself isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you think about how much of this young high schoolers value, how much of how he has come to value himself based on maybe how the world around him has valued him. He's always been an athlete. Then he gets hurt, stress, stress factor in his foot. And he's afraid of running hard of getting re-injured. Now, most would say, well, obviously he's afraid of getting re-injured because of the pain, because of not wanting to go back through a rehab. And that's certainly probably part of it. But the bigger thing here is he's afraid of getting hurt again, or he feels the pressure to perform because if he gets hurt again, the thing that he identifies most with in this world is in his head going to be fundamentally stripped away and taken away from him. So that's why we feel pressure. Now, this is true for any any person. If, there, if there's a parent watching this, parents wake up Monday morning, they probably feel a sense of pressure to be able to go out and perform in their job because that fulfills, that helps them fulfill their role as a parent. So they have a big meeting, they have a big sales call, they have a big presentation to give, they're going to feel pressure to perform. So there's nothing inherently wrong with pressure. In fact, for, you know, an athlete such as yourself, or a lot of the high level athletes that I work with that, that really have come to, you know, really understand how to perform in the face of pressure. They don't look at pressure as a threat. Pressure is more merely a, a sign that this is a moment that I'm, that I need to be in that's, that's meaningful and impactful to my life. But at a very high level, any person will feel the sensation or feel this, you know, experience of psychological pressure when they feel as though based on the results of the situation that their value to the world around them or the value that they hold to themselves may be diminished based on the result that they get in that situation. 
that is like the best explanation of what causes uh, psychological pressure that I've that I've ever heard. And um, that really summed up some of what I've been experiencing over the past two years, for example, when um, like my past in snowboarding um, and, and how the whole identity piece and the mental health crises that I went to because of all these injuries I was going through and how growing up, like everyone told me, like, you're going to be a really great athlete. You're born to be an athlete, blah, 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 blah. And then I transitioned into CrossFit, which just filled that same identity. Yes. Right. Until yep. two years ago, I had a motorbike crash and I've been two years without being able to compete. And during those two years, I have spent so much time unpacking the identity piece and realizing what am I doing this for and returning to just doing things for the love of it. And so now I have this fire to, you know, keep rehabbing competes uh, again once it's all you know ready to go but i feel absolutely no pressure and that pressure has mm. been lifted in my business in my content like in all these things because i've unpacked the identity piece that was so attached with the sporting results the business results of this and it was because i think like you said it's the value that we think that the world places on us or that piece. Mm -hmm. And I think like, like you mentioned, when you get your own value of how you see yourself tied to that, that first point, um, it can really sway things. And you think that you're not enough or you're, you're not good enough or whatever it is until you match that, that value or that identity that you think other people have put on you. And so I really appreciate you sharing that because that's, that's huge. Do you think that that was like that experience going through that experience is what motivated you, you know, because obviously when I reached out to you being an admirer of your work, you know, raising, you know, having these conversations on mental health as an athlete for athletes, do you think that was kind of the the penultimate moment for you saying this? I went through this. This is why I need to be doing the work that I'm doing now. Yeah, 100%. I did a, like a TED talk this year about failure and what I learned from not making the Olympics and how the mindset that I had when I was snowboarding, if I would have made the Olympics, I would have got a gold. It just wouldn't have been enough, right? It's always the next thing. And it's because my identity was so tied to proving other people wrong or right. you know, fulfilling this identity that I thought other people put on me rather than just I'm a human being, not a human doing. I mm-hmm. love sports. That's what I want to do. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see as... You know, I'm still trying to figure out what's exactly wrong with my shoulder. I'm awaiting a last MRI. So there's a chance I might still need surgery after this two years already of rehab. But like, I am so motivated to, you know, get back and see how competing would be like without that, that same feeling of pressure. Because when Mm. you go back and people would always ask me, well, was it the system putting pressure on you? Was it your national team coaches? Was it this? I was like, it was me. Like it was me putting pressure, but it was because of how I thought that I was perceived in that identity piece. So really appreciate you. We're kind of summarizing that much better than I could ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, no. And the reason that I asked that, and I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredibly courageous thing, right? I mean, I work with athletes all the time and just getting them to face, you know, some of these, some of these hard realities of, you know, and, and you think about like for you, even just kind of that internal dialogue and the internal self-talk that went on trying to navigate this process. And the reason that I asked that is, you know, you would talk about the sensation of the pressure being lifted. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because once we start to recognize that we are, in fact, more than just what we do, you know, for example, we uh, we may be a significant other, we may be a friend, we may be someone's child, we may be, you know, somebody who partakes in certain hobbies and things like that. And once we start to invest in, or in your case, we're forced to invest in other areas of our life. Now, all of a sudden we recognize that we can 
that we can, that there is a space to do the thing that we love to do. And just because we don't feel pressure, we didn't feel like the, the pressure that we used to, that doesn't mean that we're any less motivated or we're any less passionate. Those two things are not, you know, those two things are not, I can't even find the word here, but they're not, they're not, they're not exclusive to each other, right? It's not that you need to feel this tremendous amount of pressure in my entire identity and in, wrapped up in something. And only then do you care about what you do. That's not true at all. It's really this, this ability to, can you do the thing that you, that you love to do? And you probably still are going to feel, I'll be honest with you, you're probably still going to feel some pressure when you're in those, in those situations, but it's not going to be at the level that it used to be. And it's going to mean something else. And that's, that's really where, you know, when we think about, and when I work with my young athletes about how do we start to perform in the face of pressure, it starts with what's the relationship with pressure in the first place, because the relationship that we want to get to is obviously we're going to care. And obviously if we, if we don't do as well as we want to be able to do, we're going to, there's going to be a sense of disappointment or we might be angry or frustrated and that's okay. But that's fundamentally different, you know, feeling just natural human emotions when we don't do as well as we want to do. That's completely okay. But allowing the result of a situation to completely assault the the amount of worth that we have to ourselves or to the world around us is completely different. Um, And so I think it's going to be interesting um, as you get back into because you will. But as you get back into competition to hear how that experience has changed for you in terms of the pressure or the, or what it is that you feel in that moment is more a sign of, okay, this is, this is what I've been working for. This is, this is a, a chance to, to celebrate all that hard work to kind of steal a line from one of my, one of my favorite grad school professors, you know, you know, competition or, or performance is really just a chance to celebrate what it is that we're trying to do. And there's going to, there's going to be a feeling behind that, but it's not going to be a threatening experience. It's going to be more this experience for you of I'm in this moment because I choose to be, because I actually choose to be, nobody else is putting like, you know, nobody else is dragging me and tying me to this situation. So, oh, I can't wait to hear how that goes. Yeah, well, I, I'm excited to to do it. I'm excited to kind of show people that, you know, competing at the high level doesn't have to be a sacrifice to your mental health. And mm-hmm. there's a healthier way to do it rather than constantly trying to seek this validation from your results or whatever it is. Uh, I have a kind of a cool example. So for people who are listening in from the time this podcast is out. Two weeks prior, there's going to be a, a podcast out with one of my friends who, in 2014, when I missed out on the Olympics, she was the one who ended up getting that spot and going to the Olympics. And she talked a lot about this identity piece. And I think she she hinted at it without summarizing it as eloquently as you did, where she talked about she went to the Olympics, she got that spot, and every competition afterwards, it was like now she has to, she had this pressure to live up to that identity, that label mm-hmm. of like, I went to the Olympics, um, I'm at this level now, I need to compete with these people. And so she would get really great in the qualifications for the events and then completely choke in finals over and over again. And then mm-hmm. she went through years of injuries and now she's been years off competition because she was injury after injury after injury and poor performance after poor performance, poor performance, underperforming. And it was just so interesting to hear that, you know, regardless of how our journeys varied, where I missed the Olympics and that kind of veered my journey, she made the Olympics, but had that same experience where all of a sudden she had that label and felt like she had to live up to that label. 
one, and we can get very tactical here because what you're what you're talking about is actually something that happens often for a lot of people when they start to feel pressure or when they have kind of this this relationship between identity and sense of self-worth and the thing that they're doing in what happens is in psychology we call it a frame of reference and a frame of reference is really how do you how does an individual go about trying to determine if the thing that they're doing is the right what is the right thing or if they're going about things in the right way so for example in that situation in your friend's example what what she's really suffering from is she's suffering from an external frame of reference as in as if you were to and obviously we're this is a podcast here but i'm holding my hands up but like as if there was a frame in front of you frame in front of you and you're looking from the frame to the external world and trying to determine from the external world and in trying to see, you know, does the external world, are they okay with what I'm doing effectively? And there's, in this, obviously we're talking it through, we're talking about this through the context of high level sport and what it is to be an athlete, but there's a lot of people that struggle with this. There's a lot of people that, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, maybe they're guilty of living their life with this external frame of reference in that every single action that they take, they're looking to the world for validation or gratification or this sense of assurance. And that's what happens at times. That's one of the big things that happens at times with pressure is the pressure and this identity. If we get caught up in kind of that, you know, that little hamster wheel in our head, Now, all of a sudden we have this, again, mindset, this habitual way of thinking, this thought pattern that says, I'm going to consistently continue to look to the external world. And is the external world saying that I'm good enough? Can I find enough of myself from the external world? What obviously we want to be able to do is we want to flip that on its head. We want to be able to turn that frame of round around and look inward and try and find whether it's our, our belief system, our core values, how we were raised, you know, things like that really value driven action and trying to say, is what I'm doing, is that true and authentic to me? And again, back to you and your example of you're going to be returning to performance. You're going to be returning to you know, competition and, you know, high level sport. But I think you're going to find that there's not going to be that external frame of reference as much. And you're going to, you're going to recognize there's going to be this sense of the sense of self that's going to be so strong because you're looking outward in, you're looking from, you're looking, the frame of reference has turned around and you're looking inward to yourself and you're recognizing that I'm here for me. This is what I'm doing is true and authentic and loyal to myself. And I no longer need to look to whether it's my teammates, my friends, my family. I don't need to look to the external world and judge myself based on or my value based on how they value me. Hmm. Yes, I think that's so important. And it kind of made me think, like, especially with this example, of like a lot of people, they love to, to resonate with the underdog story. Right. Mm. And, um, I have this argument with my boyfriend all the time because we watch say the CrossFit games or the Olympics or, uh, F1, for example, and he loves to cheer for, you know, the next person coming up and I'm like, and then hate on the person who's winning over and over again. And of course, as a fan, you want to see new people and all these things, but I have such a respect always for the people who have managed to stay on top. Mm. Um, and what I found is that the people who have early, early success, like the prodigies, as well as the people who have managed to stay on top, 
I think just from understanding psychology that it's so difficult because the pressure that you have and from that early success or from trying to stay on top and everyone trying to take you down. I'd love for you to kind of go over maybe the differences of pressure that someone to try to stay on top or someone who had that early youth success uh, has versus someone who they haven't achieved that yet. And so they always, they're chasing, right? And that underdog story Mm -hmm. in a way sometimes can be easier to manage because you're like just on the way there. You know, it's interesting. And this is, you know, I think there's a lot of people that, and and there's even, you know, from very early on in my career, when I was down at the training center, I met a lot of athletes that operated under that assumption of this has to be the entirety of who I am. This has to be, I have to fulfill this. I have to do this. And how do I say this? There's that can get you that mindset, that might even that mindset that you had that mindset, you know, cause there's some people that may be listening to this being like, yeah, well, Natalie had that mindset and maybe it wasn't terribly productive at the time, but look how far it got you. Right. Here's the thing. There's a very hard ceiling, right? There is a ceiling on how much you will able, you're able to achieve now for Natalie. Thank goodness that got her all the way to, you know, is a team Canada snowboarder. Fantastic. There's a lot of other people that they find that ceiling of the amount of pressure that they face much, much lower. And I'm here to tell you that that ceiling is poured in concrete. There is, there is no breaking through that ceiling on, you know, that cap on your potential, on your ability to perform when you're faced with that much pressure, because as you allude to, let's say somebody does make it, what keeps them going? You know, if the entirety of their existence as an athlete was, I need to prove people wrong, I need to do this, I need to do that, because then I will find worth in myself. And as you alluded to, let's say that somebody somehow finds a way to win win an Olympic gold or do really well. And then there's not this sense of relief because there's no space for that relief to exist within the person. And I think that's a really important thing for people to recognize is that when you operate with that mindset, when you operate through the lens of what I do is everything that defines who I am, there's really no space for when you finally achieve because you're not going to allow yourself to achieve because if there's nothing more, because quite simply, if there's nothing more for you to achieve, then what are you? And that's a big, 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 heavy question. And that's where, again, you know, you even alluded to the struggle at times of transitioning out of the sport or getting away from it, or, you know, even, even the individual who did achieve what, what everybody, what the majority of of people in your sport want to achieve of going to the Olympics, what's next. And sometimes we've, sometimes we realize that there isn't anything next. And then there's this hole, then there's this gap of, well, how am I going to define my worth now? Yeah. Wow. No, I I absolutely love that. So how can we perform or how can an athlete or anybody who's dealing with this psychological pressure, how can they perform their best in the face of it, or just flip, flip that switch and flip that mindset? Yeah. So the first thing, again, if we're going to start with the mindset is we need to be able to find some balance. Now, this might be like in your situation or like in the situation with my athlete where he got injured, it might be forced. We might be forced to find some balance here because we just can't get away from our sport. But especially for, you know, obviously I work with a lot of like younger developing athletes and for them specifically, it's a lot of work with the parents because kids are very impressionable. 
And when a young athlete, you know, a, t- a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old, and let's say they're, you know, I've had some who are incredibly good at baseball. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, the parent, because they see their athletically gifted child and the parent, not, not out of any malicious intent or anything like that. They just want to support the child to the best of their ability. So what do they do? Right. They, they get them on two or three different travel teams and they go to all the showcases and they get, you know, two or three private coaches, but what ends up happening or, or the subtextually what's happening there subconsciously for the athlete is now all of a sudden it's very easy for this young athlete to start to see that or start to think that whether it's true or not, that the really the biggest piece of value that I have to my parents is this thing that I'm doing in baseball, because it's what we talk about. It's what we spend all of our time doing. It's what we travel to go do. It's what, you know, when it's what all my friends are are tied up in baseball. Some of the most impactful people in my life are my coaches. They're also my baseball coaches. When grandpa and grandma come over for Thanksgiving dinner, they're asking me about baseball. So it's mm-hmm. very easy all of a sudden for this young person to just, because there's a bit of conditioning going on here, to just start to fall into this mindset of my worth to the people around me is based on this thing that I do. So with younger athletes specifically, it's way more about the work with the parents and how do we balance that out? How can we become acutely aware of like, if you think about it, like a, like a grade school pie chart, right? Think about the grade school pie chart with parents. I'd often ask like, you know, write down the percentage of time that you spend talking to thinking about your child as this role is this role of an athlete. And then I also want you to write down what percentage of time do you remind them that they're a child, that they're your son or daughter, that they're, that they're somebody's friend, that they're probably a sibling, how much, you know, how much praise do you give for these other roles versus how much praise do you give your child for you know, their role as an athlete or the success that they have as an athlete versus the success that they have as a student, a brother, a friend, you know, somebody's great, you know, grandchild, whatever it may be. And I think what parents, you know, parents eyes kind of, you know, get nice and big, like a cartoon character. Cause they're like, Oh shoot. We've really been conveying this message of sports and athletics. Um, not, and again, I, I always operate under the assumption with parents is that they're, they're doing what they what they're doing because they're trying to keep their child safe, keep their in, in this case, keep their child safe from failure, failure. And so they're going to do everything that they can to keep their child from failing. So they're going to throw every bit of resources that they can at the child. But at times, though, this can kind of be a self-fulfilling prophecy because now the child feels just this tremendous amount of pressure and now they're not able to perform and then now they're looking around the world around them wondering, well, what are people going to think of me if I can't do this thing or be as good at this thing as I was before? So that's more on like the younger athlete side is a lot more of it has to do with the work with parents. Now, for older individuals, such as my pro, you know, women's soccer player, it's truly like it's some big, heavy conversations. Like it truly is what's driving this where is it, where does this come from? What are some of the, you know, if we can get into what are some of the underlying thought patterns, what are some of the emotions that lie underneath this? And, and almost always it connects to this sense of this sense of shame and shame is really nothing more than the fear of being unworthy. And that's, those are hard. Those are big, heavy conversations. And <clears throat> at times that can lead to a lot of tears, but there can kind of be this sort of, you know, not to sound super floofy here, but like there can be this sort of emotional kind of awakening, if that's what you want to call it, or this, this, this heightened state of emotional awareness around, wow, 
this is what's really been driving this for a long time. And then with the, with the older individuals, it truly is a matter of, obviously you're a professional, you need to work hard, you need to continue doing what you're doing. But when it's time to stop being in this case, a soccer player, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're thinking about? Are you investing in other areas of your life? Are you investing in relationships outside of soccer? And it's ironic because this obviously isn't just contained to high level sport. There are individuals listening to this that, you know, at one time in their life, they may have gotten too wrapped up in their career, right? They may have had a very demanding job and because that job is so demanding and maybe there's, maybe it's a very prestigious job, doctor, lawyer, whatever it may be, people see them as such. And so now what they do is become so much of who they are and Maybe we neglect some of the other relationships that quite literally we don't, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, they don't hold as valuable, not because they don't think that those people are important, but because they don't perceive that the world around them finds value in them for those other relationships. So, you know, the classic example is, you know, career driven man or career driven woman, right? They're driven by their career because they perceive that the world around them values them for their career. Maybe not so much as a, you know, father or father or mother or as a spouse or as somebody's friend or whatever it may be. So it's something that applies certainly to high level athletes and performers. But, you know, the, the message that I have to a lot of people is that in, in some way, shape or form, we're all performers. We're all trying to, we're all trying to achieve. We're all trying to move ourselves from the version of, from the, from the version that we are to the version of ourselves that we want to be. Um, and we, we, we certainly should be at the same time striving to do that in the healthiest possible way and making that thing the entirety of, of the value that we have to the world. There's going to be a hard cap on the amount of success or happiness or fulfillment that really anybody has in their life. Mm, such an important topic and such important advice. And um I'm curious because I think it, it takes time to break that mindset, especially mm -hmm. for, for example, the pro female soccer player that you have, you know, probably for her, if she's always attached, you know, with that external validation or whatever it is, it takes a lot of time. Like you have that breakthrough moment, but you know, in moments of pressure, for example, you might mm -hmm. fall back into that same mindset. What can people do to like keep working on that? Is it just, you know, attacking those subconscious thoughts and trying to be more aware of them and be more mindful of them and, and switching that narrative, does it, how long does it take for someone to, to change that? Well, the, how long it takes is really the classic, like it, it depends and it truly does depend. I think I've had some people who it just clicks and then there can be like this big sense of relief. There are other people who, you know, in, and we'll get to what kind of drives it. There are other people who are just very resistant to that change. And almost always, you know, you, you make a great point in terms of, you know, we don't have to get too theoretical here with it, but you make a great point of, you know, is it being mindful of the thoughts or the thought patterns or that sort of thing? And in a way, yes, but thoughts to me and the work that I do with athletes aren't nearly as important as understanding the emotions that underpin those thoughts. Because I think a lot of people operate under the philosophy that thoughts equal action. And that's not necessarily true. We have 70 to 80,000 thoughts in a day. We don't take action on the majority of them. The majority of them are like cars that, you know, that were, you know, the, the metaphor that I use is you're driving down the interstate and there's a probably tens of hundreds of thousands of cars that have passed you on the other, other side of the road, or that you're driving with on your side of the road. The majority of those thoughts we pay no attention to. We couldn't describe them. They have no bearing on our life. There are a few thoughts that really grab us though. 
car in front of you stops short at a light, right? And you almost rear end them. You experience then this emotion of fear and then followed by maybe a little bit of anger. Like, what is this idiot doing stopping short in front of me? Well, you're going to remember that car. You're going to remember that car because it created an emotional experience for you. So yes, we need to be mindful of the thoughts and things like that. But what we really need to become acutely aware of is what are the emotions that underpin those thoughts? Because it's the emotions that at times that that can be the thing that dictates the action. We have, like I said, 70 to 80,000 thoughts in a day. We, we don't take action on the majority of them, but we do tend to, at times, many people, and even myself included, we, we as people can be guilty of taking actions on thoughts based on how they made us fear or feel, right? So for example, maybe they made us afraid or we were frustrated or angry or we were worried or doubtful or you know we felt a little bit of shame and that emotion then caused that individual to then take some sort of action or cause that move them to inaction right i think sometimes many of the sometimes the most powerful effective emotions can be the actions that we don't take right so individual sees an attractive potential significant other they feel fear they don't go approach that person and say hello so that's that's a, that's kind of the hallmark example of that so when it gets, when it comes to, you know, how do we start to move that person to change? It really is. A, it, it's a, a lot of the work is truly rooted in what's the emotional experience that's going on here. How do those emotions at times dictate the actions that we take, whether that's a physical action or whether that's a mental action in terms of how do those emotions dictate our thinking or dictate how we talk to ourselves in those situations. Once we can, again, raise a lot of awareness around that, then it becomes this process, this very consistent process that they need to be held accountable to of you as a person are allowed to feel however it is that you need to feel. We as people, we are going to feel fear and worry and doubt and anger and shame. And that's okay. That is, you know, emotions are kind of the the texture that, you know, they're, that kind of give, you know, life texture, right? There's, there's not really a ton of, ton of, of ton of life without emotion. Right. And I think the majority of, the majority of people spend a lot of time or the majority of athletes spending a lot, spend a lot of time trying to beat back fear or beat back shame or beat back worry. And what they also do then is because, you know, we, you know, as Brene Brown work, Brene Brown's work has been so tremendous, you know, we, we can't selectively numb emotions. And so as if, if somebody like my pro female soccer player, the, the example there is she spent so much time battling the fear and the worry and the doubt and the anger and the frustration that all of a sudden she woke up one day and there also wasn't a lot of space for happiness. There wasn't a lot of space for joy. There wasn't a lot of space for fulfillment or even to be excited about her sport. And that is in that obviously we did a lot of work on vulnerability and working through a lot of those things. So everything's connected. I think from a theme standpoint, though, yes, thoughts play a role, but thoughts are really only impactful based on the emotions. And can a person better understand how the how how, how what they're feeling is trying to impact the actions or the inactions that, that they may take? And almost always for any person, whether you're, you know, doctor, lawyer, high level athlete, or, you know, a high schooler trying to take a test, almost any time that we allow our emotions to impact what we do or what we don't do, that's almost always going to move us further away from a place of trying of, of being able to be successful. I, that's so important because I think there's a lot of times where 
we forget about the whole fact of emotions. And in sports, there's kind of the old culture of coaching where it was mm-hmm. like emotions are nothing. Who cares? They don't matter. Right. And it, I think that couldn't be further from the truth when you have a, you know, someone like you who, who mentors these young athletes, these pro athletes, and you talk so much about emotions and how they do affect us. So neglecting emotions would make no sense from a mental health standpoint, a a psychological standpoint, a performance standpoint of just neglecting these emotions. So how can we separate ourselves from the emotions and, you know, not let them impact us as much? I think, I think it goes back to step one is how aware are you that they're even happening in the first place? And I think that that's, I would say that self-awareness is probably, you know, of all the mental skills out there that people get so excited about, I would say that self-awareness is probably the most underrated quality that a person can have because it's the, it's the old cliche. You can't, you can't fix a problem unless you recognize that there is one. Well, you can't, you can't stop allowing the emotions to impact what you do or what you don't do unless you can recognize that they exist in the first place. And that and unless you can put, you know, a name to what the emotions are and, and really what, what happens then is, you know, the great example is, have you ever met somebody, two examples of people who get really angry? Okay. We've all met that person who gets really, really angry and they start taking a lot of actions out of that anger. Maybe they start yelling or they start, you know, throwing stuff or they, you know, whatever it is, right. There's, it's just clear or, or you can see that like, they're just in their own head and they're completely shut down and reserved because they're incredibly angry. Compare and contrast that to somebody, maybe a fa- a parent, right. Who kiddo messed up. And the parent says, instead of just yelling and throwing a tantrum, the parents identifies and says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty upset right now, but here's what we need to be able to do. In that, in that example, one person identified what it is that they were feeling. The other person never did. And what happens when we're able to identify emotions, when we're able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually pretty embarrassed right now, or I'm actually pretty frustrated right now. What we do is in psychology, we call that creating space. If you can create space between yourself and the emotion and you can recognize it for what it is, it's actually far more likely that that you're going to be able to stop yourself from taking an action due to that emotion. But that all starts with, can you become aware? So one of the things, one of the very basic exercises that I'll do with an athlete when we're, when we're doing this is I'll have them create three columns on a sheet of paper and I'll say, okay, write down the situation. What was the situation? What was again, the literal word for word thought in their head? Because again, while thoughts aren't necessarily important, we can use thoughts. You know, if we have this, have the same dominant thought over and over again, generally that's going to lead to the same emotion. So it can kind of be this sort of radar system. So column one is situation. Column two is what was the literal word for word thought. And then the most important column is what emotion or couple of emotions underpinned that thought. And I'll actually do this with athletes and I'll have them write down 20 situations or, you know, multiple thoughts for one situation. So we'll get 20 to 25 thoughts on a sheet of paper and then they'll identify emotions. Now, generally the thoughts are all going to be different. Okay. The thoughts are all going to be, you can have 25 different thoughts on a sheet of paper, but then if you go over to the emotion column, you'll start to recognize that it's really two or three emotions that are popping up. It's like, oh, well, there we go. 
that's a great way to be able to recognize, wow, fear is really popping up here. I'm, I'm making, I'm, I'm having a lot of thoughts or I'm making a lot of decisions out of fear or shame is popping up a lot here, or maybe even it's anger, you know, anger is really driving a lot of my behavior. Well, now, now we come, once we're able to do that, now it becomes a matter of, okay, how do we move ourselves to a place of probably the scariest word in the human language is acceptance. How do we move ourselves to a place where we can accept the fact that we feel a certain way? Because the majority of people that really struggle with their emotions, they're trying to change, ignore, or fight how they feel. Okay. So it's, you know, changing how they feel. They're trying to tell themselves to just be positive, right? You just, you just blew the game in the last second. You know, you get off the ice and, and grandma comes up and tells you, you know, just be positive, Timmy, just be positive. No, no, grandma, I'm not going to be positive. I'm, I'm upset. I'm allowed to be upset. It's not authentic, right? When we try and change or convince ourselves that we feel something other than what we feel, it doesn't necessarily work. Other people try and ignore how they feel. We try and ignore our emotions and you know, that's kind of the, you know, don't think of a little blue, little blue bunny rabbit, right? If any listener listening to this podcast closes their eyes and I tell them under no circumstances are you to think about a little blue bunny rabbit, every single person's thinking about a little blue bunny rabbit. The, it's called the ironic effect, right? The brain speaks in images. So if you're sitting there trying to tell yourself, just, just ignore, just don't be angry. Well, it's not going to work either, right? Because now your brain is just, you're angry and that because you are. Um, and then the last thing that we do is we try and fight. We try and fight how we feel or we try and, you know, we try and fight in a variety of different forms, the, the, the thing or the individual that made us feel how it is that we feel. We fight them with words. We fight them, you know, hopefully not with actions, but, you know, we, we, we try and change, ignore, or fight how we feel. And that just really leads to the emotions grabbing onto us that much more when in fact, and, and I guess really the, the underlying belief there, the underlying mindset there around emotions is a lot of people operate under the assumption that in order for me to do what I need to be able to do or be the person that I need to be able to be in this situation, I need to be without this emotion. I need to find a way to get rid of it. And there's no rule in the rule book of the world that says that that's true. Okay. There's, we, we do things all the time we're able to take actions all the time if we choose to, in spite of how we feel. And that's really where the secret is. So can we recognize the emotions? Can we create enough space and accept and just allow the emotion to be? Because generally what I tell people is, listen, if you want to feel something else, just wait 10 minutes, right? That's how emotions work. If you allow them to pass, they will pass. But if you take actions or if you try and combat the emotion, well, then now the emotions got you. Right now, now it's going to it's going to grab onto you and it's going to dictate how you think, what you do. So, again, we want to be able to raise our awareness. We want to be able to create some space. We want to move ourselves to a place of acceptance. And then the, the last key is, can we find a way or find a path to a more productive action in the face of that emotion? So. You know, you're at the starting gate about to do a run. Um, there's some fear that pops up and maybe that fear in the past would dictate, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe that fear in the past would cause you to start, it would, it would dictate your thinking and it would cause you to, you know, start to, you know, become more future focused in your thinking in terms of, I hope I don't mess up here. I wonder what people are going to think. I really need this score, yada, yada. Well, that all those things are that all that is very unproductive. Whereas let's say that you're on the starting gate and you feel some fear and you recognize, Oh, 
That's that thing. That's that thing of fear that tends to pop up here. Instead of doing all those old actions that I did because I was afraid, what's the most productive action that I can take in the face of that fear? And generally that would be maybe take a deep, calming, centering breath, get your mind back in the moment and focus on executing your plan. That would be a fundamentally more productive action to take. It just takes practice. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of repetition. But, you know, really what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to position ourselves consistently. We need to be able to position our mind and our body consistently to be able to put it in a place where it can succeed. That's not necessarily, that's almost never going to happen if we allow our emotions to determine the actions that we take versus if we allow ourselves to take those actions. That's such practical advice and a practical tool that anybody can implement at like athlete or not into their lives, especially that creating that chart, writing all that stuff down. I know I'll definitely be testing it out. So super appreciate you uh, sharing that. I'd love to ask you like what got you into this whole field of high performance and sports psychology? Yeah. You know, I was, I was an athlete in high school and it certainly got recruited. Um, but quickly realized that, you know, I kind of had this, you know, I, I, I was a baseball player. I did not have a division one arm, but I had a brain that, that could, you know, that was a division one brain and I could get some money, um, on the, on the academic side of things. And, you know, I come from two like very blue collar, you know, very blue collar family in the upper Midwest here. And, you know, with the with the situation that we were in, it just made a lot more sense for me to kind of exit, you know, the this the pursuit of sport and take the money on the educational side. And I've always wanted to be close to sport. I think, you know, in reflection, even as like a high school athlete, I probably would have wished that I would have had somebody like myself because um, maybe the story would have been a little bit different or maybe there would have been a little bit a few more opportunities there. Um, but you know, I'll be honest with you. It was, I was pre-med for a long time in undergrad, um, sat in on a psych 101 course was really kind of questioning. Did I really want to do this? Did I really want to spend 14 years of my life to then, you know, work for somebody else? That was, a, I mean, truthfully, that was, you know, as, as transparent as I can be, that was a big, that was a big driver behind it. Um, sat in on a psych 101 course. <clears throat> Absolutely. It just clicked. It made it, made a ton of sense. Um, but I didn't necessarily want to work with the extreme side of, of, of mental health, at least not at the time. Um, and I guess I, at the, in a way I've kind of backdoored in it to be more on the, on the proactive resilient side of things, but, um, had a, had a professor, um, a great mentor of mine walked into his office said, Hey, I literally said, Hey, this stuff makes a lot of sense. Um, and him knowing me fairly well, he goes, well, how do you feel about sports psychology? No idea what you're talking about. Couldn't tell you. Went home that night. You know, there's a there's a textbook, probably an inch and a half thick with all the sports psychology programs and thumbed through it. And the majority of them were research based. I'm like, I don't I don't want to be in the lab, man. I want to be I want to be working with people. I want to be finding a way to, you know, again, I think there was kind of that natural thing of what led me to pre-med was wanting to be in a position, you know, not to be corny or cliche, but to be in a position to serve others or, or to help make people make meaningful change. And and went through that University of Denver in that book, they had a sliding scale of one was most applied, 10 was research focused. University of Denver was one, right? They were going to teach you how to work with athletes, how to work with people, how to help them make, you know, meaningful and impactful change in their life. And I'm like, oh, that's the one. 
let's go do that. And that just kind of set me on a journey. And it's kind of one of those where you never really know where you're going to end up. Um, happy where I did. And then I think you have a variety of experiences from there that kind of, you know, craft, you know, obviously the ones that I've spoken to, you know, kind of steer you towards the work that you're doing now and the work that I'm doing kind of with more of these younger developing athletes. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, but yeah, no, that's perfect. I, I love that. I mean, I took some psychology and a sports psychology <clears throat> class in school. I did all the electives I could, especially I studied marketing and business management mm. and psychology, such a major point. And it was always something I was passionate about. And I love those classes, but I just want to, uh, you know, show you out and appreciate what you do, because I think it's just so important in the world now, like the, the jobs and the careers that people choose where it's to help other people, especially on the mental side of things, but, you know, with physical side, the health side, um, mental performance, healing, like that is just so needed in this world now, especially with the way the culture was, and especially with the mm. mental health crisis that athletes are experiencing. So, uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for yeah. doing what you do, for sharing it on here. And, uh, I have two questions. I end every podcast on quick questions. Mm-hmm. So I will, uh, I'll give them to you. The first one is of all the daily habits that you have, what is that one game changer habit for you? I read, hmm. read. I am, I have always been a voracious, voracious reader. Um, in the middle school that I was in, I'll never forget this. It was, it was a fifth grade reading teacher. And basically the, the, the concept of the class, her rules were you could either do all this like rudimentary, like boring reading work, um, or just like the, the essays or whatever it is, or you could read books and you could write like a couple paragraphs on it to prove that you read the books. And I read books. I, I read those and, you know, wrote, wrote the little like blurbs about, you know, basically like the cliff notes version of it, wrote the little like one page blurbs about the books and never had to do any of the other boring stuff. And I've just, I've always been somebody who reads. I think that, you know, it's ironic, you know, the, the dollar amount that like we spend on, on education and, and there's just so much information um, that can be housed in a little, you know, 15 to $20 book. So I've always operated under the, under the premise of, I, I never hesitate to buy a book. If there's a book that, you know, even contains one little tip, that one little nugget, one little change that, whether it helps me in my personal life, whether it helps me in my professional life, whether it helps me, you know, physical, mental health, whatever it is, I love to read. So I, I, I tend to, I, I will usually get through about 25 to 30 books a year. Um, and yeah, so that, that is just the daily thing. It's something I look forward to. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm a, I'm a big reader. Awesome. No, I love that. Investing in your knowledge and especially advising to people like, yeah, like you said, a 10, 15, $20 book, mm-hmm. it can make a big difference. Books, podcasts, courses, YouTube videos, mm-hmm. like learning from other people's experiences. It's just so easy now in the world that yep. we live in and it's so affordable. I've got one more thing on that because I think the underlying mindset there is, you know, I, I, I've had a lot of mentors, obviously, like in the in in my field in my industry, but then also on like the business side, you know, because at the end of the day, if we, you know, if if you if you can't run and operate a successful business, it doesn't really matter how great your mission is, or doesn't matter how great your work is, right? There's kind of this adage of you need to be able to make it in order to be to be able to matter. And one of the one of the best pieces of advice that I've ever gotten is, you know, 
I think, and this is for really anybody, but we all, we all kind of wonder, you know, how can we be successful? How can we, how can we find our path to like this life that we want? And there's there, the best piece of advice came from a mentor of mine. And he goes, you know, imagine, you know, that, that you're living across the street from somebody and maybe they found a level of success in their life, whether it's personally, professionally, whatever it is. And, you know, you'd love to know how your neighbor found, you know, found their path to that success. Now, the majority of people will spend as much time as they possibly can trying to figure it out, trying to theorize, trying to try a million different strategies, whatever it is. The advice that I got from my mentor is, well, what if you just went over there and knocked on the door and asked him how he did it? That's books, you know, and basically you can, you can find a person's life story, the culmination of like their life experience in, in a book. And there's so much, so much good that can come from that. So no, I think that's just kind of like the underlying, it was a really cool piece of advice that I had gotten in my life that, that I was happy to share. I love that. And I think that's kind of like the mission of this podcast even is, mm-hmm. you know, to get people on here and they're sharing their advice and their knowledge, and it's going to help so many other people who are listening in and, and could appreciate it. And it helps them all for, for free, um, similar to how a book would work. And they can't, it's hard to, you, when you go to school, those people don't have the time to write a whole course, right? Like you're not right. a full-time right. professor. You're, you're, you're practicing what you preach. And so um, coming on here and sharing it is just so helpful for the audience. So thank you again for that. And then the last question that I have um, is, let's say you're at the end of your life and you're mm-hmm. looking back, what is the impact that you wanted to have made over, over that course of your life? Oh, that's a good question. I think for me, I would just, I would want the impact to be, you know, I take a lot of pride, like in the success stories that are on, on my website. Um, and I've got a freebie for your audience too, um, before we hop off here, but I take a lot of pride in that, but I also, I never put like the person's name or anything else like that. And there's a really big philosophy for me. Like if you, you go to my success stories, you'll see like a super nice testimonial and, and in the individual would be like, if I put their name there, you know, like if I put Natalie Allport's name there, like that would probably be way more impactful than if I just said, you know, team Canada snowboarder or whatever it is. But I, I've always operated under the premise of, you know, my client's success isn't my success. And because it, it could, because it isn't, you know, it's my, my role in the individual's lives that, that I get to work with. My role is I'm, I'm that of the guide. I am just merely the resource. It's kind of the, the Mr. Miyagi versus the karate kid example, because, you know, Mr. Miyagi had all the, all the wisdom in the world, but he couldn't paint the fence for the kid. You know, he couldn't paint the fence for the karate kid. He couldn't put the wax on and the wax off or carry the water or any of that stuff. The karate kid had to do it. And it was the role of Mr. Miyagi to be there, to be the resource, to be the guide, to have kind of the wisdom, to be able to see the bigger picture, but also be able to provide at times the tough love at times to, you know, just kind of be the person that kind of led them up the mountain. Um, But it's not my climb to make. And so I think for me and all the athletes that I have been able to positively impact and all the athletes that I will be able to, to, to be able to impact, I think I would love my legacy to be that that very few people except those athletes knew that that was the relationship that like we had, that, that we were able to do that work together. Um, because yeah, that's just, that's, that's the approach that I take. And I think that's what I would like to be like the, the, that would, I would like that to be my legacy is I was kind of the quiet person, you know, behind the scenes in the shadows, um, 
that got to stand there and watch them go out and, you know, be, be able to, there's nothing more fulfilling than, than being able to take a young person who is struggling, you know, for example, like I had a client now that, I mean, they've stayed with me for a long, long time. And, and, and honestly, he could have, he could have exited our work a long time. He's good. Like he's good to go. But I think, you know, there's, there's an aspect of mentorship to it. There's an aspect of, of kind of that lifelong, you know, kind of client for life type thing with it. But, you know, this was an individual who, I mean, you want to talk about somebody who just really struggled with confidence to a point to where, wouldn't look you in the eye, wouldn't, didn't want to convey a thought in it. And I think that in, he played hockey and obviously in the very rugged world of hockey, that's not going to, that's not going to go over very well. I think, you know, there are certainly still sports where you kind of have got to have the bravado. You kind of got a you know, little chest puffy to you, you know, you kind of got to be able to get out there and, and, and carry yourself a certain way in order to instill the, 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 the confidence in you that, that you want your coaches to have. And to be able to take that individual and where he is now, you know, being a, a USHL player, being a captain of a team of a USHL team, which is the, the highest junior hockey league in, at least in our country. Um, I know there's some great ones in Canada. Um, but to to see that transformation and to see how how much his parents are just blown away by like the version of himself that he's able to, to be that he's been able to become and and again none of that was me it was just it, that was his work that he that he was willing and that he was able to do so yeah no it's 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 really cool i love what i do um and yeah i think that that probably came out you know in this interview no, a hundred percent. I was going to say you're very passionate about what you do clearly and knowledgeable what you do and you've really helped the audience. So absolutely love that. Um, last thing, where can people find you? And I know you mentioned you have a freebie, so yeah. I'll make sure to put those things in the show notes, but here's your chance to just shut them out too. Yeah. You know, if there's a parent listening to this or if there's an athlete listening to this being like, you know, and listen, I get it. There's, it's hard to find like resources and, and there, there's always a cost to it, but if they want a free place to start, um, I've got a free guide over at my website. So it's train with perk perk is P E R C not K. So train with perk P E R C.com forward slash free guide. Um, it's a little 10 minute read to get through. It contains three things that you really, anybody can use to kind of help them better prepare for that next big moment that next you know we talked a lot about pressure today that next big pressure filled moment you know three things um that i that have been kind of the favorites of whether young athletes older athletes doesn't really matter they're easy to install um but yeah trainwithperk.com slash free guide i think that's a great place to send them they'll they'll see all my other stuff over there so perfect well thank you so much for coming on sharing your knowledge and just really appreciate all the work that you do yeah, well, thank you for having me, Natalie. It meant a lot. I know it's not a small thing to have somebody come and talk to your people. So, no, appreciate the opportunity. Hey, I think that the greatest gift in life is presence. So thank you so much for gracing me with your presence of tuning in to this episode. Now, something that I would appreciate a ton and would help this podcast keep growing is if you, one, take a screenshot of this episode and share it on your social media so more people can find the podcast and hopefully we can help impact more people. As well as number two is if you can leave a rating and a written review. That means so much. And once again, thank you for being here.